I'm really pleased to introduce tonight's guest, Christopher Caldwell. Christopher writes a weekly column on politics, culture, and international affairs for the Financial Times. Mr. Caldwell is a senior editor at the Weekly Standard and a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. He just finished working on a book titled Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, Immigration, Islam, and the West, which will be released on July 21, 2009. He is a graduate of Harvard College, where he studied English literature. Please welcome Christopher Caldwell. Golly, well, um, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Gregory, Dulce, uh, Laura, uh, everyone at Zocalo, and thank you all for uh, coming out tonight. Uh, I've been uh, asked uh, to talk tonight about uh, some of the differences uh, between American and uh, European mass immigration, that is, the, the, the large-scale immigration that we've had over the last half century, that things that I've noticed over the last... Uh, 10 years or so of reporting on the subject uh, from Europe. And I've also been asked to consider whether those differences are, are related to, to Islam. Um, the book that Gregory just mentioned has a lot of analysis about uh, uh, the economic costs and benefits of immigration and the uh, global uh, opinion and global strategy. But I, I, don't, I, I, w I don't want to talk about uh, economic costs and benefits tonight. I'd rather... Uh, focus on a, on a different kind of cost or, or perceived cost in how immigration works uh, on a day-to-day -day level. Uh, and that is, immigration often imposes a cost on, on natives uh, that is paid in, in, in privileges and um, even uh, sometimes uh, in, in rights. And the wider the difference between the old country's culture and, and the new countries, the higher... Uh, the, the, the price in, uh, in, in, in rights and privileges. Uh, America has had plenty of opposition uh, to immigration, as anyone in Los Angeles knows, but you very seldom hear the same kind of complaints about fundamental cultural incompatibility that you hear in Europe. Uh, and you hear them from both immigrants and natives. Uh, so Islam does have something to do with European misgivings about immigration, but, but in an indirect way. This is it's because it is a powerful culture, distant from Europe's and with values that are, that are skeptical of, of, of Europe's at times. Um, probably in most cases, the benefits uh, of immigration in terms of dynamism and convenience uh, outweigh the disruptions. I'm not sure Europe is such a case. Um, now, if you read the, the European press coverage since uh, our own uh, presidential election, you will be struck by uh, how gloomy it is, which seems like a kind of a mystery. I mean, uh, we've all seen the adoring crowds uh, out to see Barack Obama in Berlin, and we've kept reading the poll numbers uh, showing that 95% of French people would have voted for Obama if they could. So why is, this why is there this grim tone in the European press coverage? Uh, for the most part, it's because uh, Europeans don't believe they have a Barack Obama among their immigrants, uh, and more importantly, they believe that they wouldn't vote for him if they did. Um, but but the, the, the fact that they talk about Obama in these terms is unusual for an American, because in, in, during our election coverage, we did not talk about Barack Obama uh, as the son of a foreigner. We talked about him, by and large, as a 
a black man, and and this is uh, this is understandable in in in, in our own history, um, our immigration. Uh, our story of immigration has been mostly a success. Uh, our story of race, race relations has been uh, calamitous at times. This European way of, of addressing the Obama victory is a sign that, that they view our immigration as more successful than theirs, and they're right about that. But it's also a sign uh, that they view their own immigration experience as having more in common with our uh, race problem than with our successful history of immigration. So the very terms in which they discuss it indicate that they, they have a problem. Europe is uh, now, for the first time in its uh, modern history, a, uh, a continent of migrants. Um, there are about 350, 400 million people in Western Europe. Um, 40 or 50 million of them are living outside their countries of birth. Uh, in almost all Western European countries, the population of immigrants um, surpa- approaches or surpasses 10%. Even traditionally backward countries on the periphery uh, of, of Europe, um, like Ireland and Spain, are now cosmopolitan countries. Ireland is 14% immigrant. Uh, in the first five years of this, uh, of this decade, Spain's uh, immigrant population was increasing by 22% a year. Uh, some of these people that we're discussing are uh, just uh, are, are, are people from neighboring countries moving within the European Union, but uh, uh, roughly half of them are, are non-European immigrants. And this non-European immigration is unpopular. Um, if you looked at polls earlier this decade, you'd find that uh, only 19% of Europeans think immigration has been good for their countries. More than half say their countries have, quote, too many foreigners. And the more immigration a country has had, the higher uh, this type of antipathy registers. You have uh, uh, 73% of French people think their country has too many immigrants, 69% of British. Now, uh, I should note that this week, the the German Marshall Fund of the United States um, released some numbers showing that um, European attitudes are at last beginning to converge with American ones on immigration. But the argument still remains not so much over how much uh, immigration Europeans desire, but over how much they'll uh, tolerate. It's the mostly Muslim countries south of the Mediterranean that that provide the bulk of of this non-European immigration uh, that we're talking about. And the misgivings about immigration in the abstract uh, are nothing next to the uh, misgivings about uh, Islam in particular. And this is not, among Europeans, this is not just uh, an overreaction or an overzealous embrace of the war on terror or whatever, uh, uh, because you see this antipathy, uh, it antedates um, uh, September 11th, 2001. Uh, in polls taken before then, the, the, the French were three times as likely to complain of, quote, too many Arabs, unquote, uh, as they were to complain of too many anything else. Um, the mayor of Madrid uh, said a couple of years ago that his city, his city is, quote, is not and does not wish to be multicultural. You have um, the uh, late journalist Oriana Falacci published a book in 2002, which was a just a... Uh, 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 acidic screed against um, Islam in Europe 
That uh, sold a million copies in Italy and it became the best nonfiction book in the history of the country. Um, in 2004, um, uh, the Princeton Islamic scholar uh, Bernard Lewis was asked by a German uh, newspaper to predict whether Europe would be a superpower at the end of this 21st century. And he said, Europe will be part of the Arabic West of the Maghreb. Um, so it, 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 it worries people. Now, so it worries people to the extent that whether, you, whether or not you consider uh, European immigration, immigration in Europe, uh, an absolute failure, it's certainly a, a failure r- relative to our own, or at least it has worrying aspects that we do not really hear, have here. Uh, so it's worth asking, is this failure, is it due to European prejudice? Uh, is it due to something inherently uh, difficult to assimilate about Islam? I would say uh, that it's due to both, or, uh, or at least to the way they, uh, to the way they interact. Uh, a society that wants to assimilate Muslim subcultures on the basis of mutual cultural respect uh, has a higher price to pay, uh, and, and that price is paid in the form of uh, accommodations, and that price is paid in the form of uh, constitutional rights, and, and I'll try and be clearer about this as as I continue. Since the demographic weight of Im- immigration in Europe, since the immigrant population uh, uh, in, in Europe is roughly roughly the same size as ours in the United States, uh, it's tempting to draw uh, comparisons, but there are important differences. The tone of American immigration, um, I, I think, is set by Latin American culture. Uh, and the tone of European immigration is set by uh, Muslim culture. Uh, now, no one will, uh, certainly in Los Angeles, I don't want to claim that there's no hostility to Latin American culture in, in, in uh, the United States. But the, I would say that the cultural peculiarities of Latin American immigrants generally appear to Americans to be antiquated versions of their own. Uh, Yes, newly arrived Latinos speak a different language, but it's a European language, and it's a language that most teenagers study in schools. And uh, by the second generation, it has generally been not abandoned, but but it has uh, become a second language with with English as the first language. Latinos um, in America generally have less money, They have higher labor force participation, more authoritarian family structures, lower divorce rates, more frequent church attendance, lousier diets, and higher rates of military enlistment than the native-born. In other words, uh, Latino culture uh, in its broad outlines is like like the American working class uh, culture of 40 years ago. That is, it's perfectly intelligible to any American who's ever had a conversation about the past with his parents. Um, so the kind of mass immigration we have, um, it can disrupt local habits. It, it, it can cause um, logistical headaches in, in hospitals and schools and other uh, public services. But it requires no fundamental reform of American cultural practices and institutions at all. And uh, on balance, it may um, strengthen them. The European experience with Islam is different. Uh, Living with 
Islam, uh, living with Muslim cultures, uh, requires larger adjustments. And, and they touch deeper, more essential parts of, of European culture. Um, since its arrival in Europe a half a century ago, Islam has um, uh, required, a, uh, required Europeans to defend or adapt uh, or eliminate a lot of um, a lot of traditions that they uh, uh, a lot of traditions and a lot of state structures and and sometimes these are minor. Um, there are businesses uh, getting rid of drinks after work, women only hours at swimming pools, um, prayer rooms in in corporations, factories, and department stores for Muslim employees. These are not such a big deal, um, but sometimes the Adjustments are larger than that. Sometimes they are major, and they and they involve um, things that the larger the, the the native culture, if I may call it that, thinks of as its uh, its way of life, its system of rights, the essence of its culture. And you know, there are a lot of ways to show this that I that are sort of off my topic tonight. Um, for instance, Europe has a lot of the same constitutional search and seizure, privacy type uh, difficulties that we've had regarding the, the Fourth Amendment, things um, concerning, you know, s keeping mosques under uh, surveillance and tapping phone calls and monitoring um, uh, uh, communications to, to Muslim countries. But I, I would, I, I'd rather not talk about those uh, tonight, uh, just because I don't want to mix up... Uh, immigration and, uh, and terrorism. Not that I think that there's no connection between the two ever. I think it's a legitimate subject to discuss. But I, I'm more interested in, um, I, I'm more interested in, in, in the price that, that living with Islam day to day uh, 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 costs European natives. And so for that reason, I, I, I want to look at, at, at something in, in the daily fabric of, of European life, which is uh, which is the family, sex, and, and feminism. Um, now, this, is a, this causes great conflicts. Muslim societies are still religious societies. Even when you have non-believers in such a society, they're shaped by uh, religious uh, viewpoints. Europe is a post-religious society. Uh, for many Muslim uh, immigrants to Europe, uh, virtue takes the traditional form of, of chastity um, uh, when we talk about gender relations. For almost all Europeans, uh, virtue takes the newer form, and, and, and the, some would say the radical form, of sexual autonomy. Now, there's a lot to be said uh, for both. There's a lot to be said for chastity, there's a lot to be said for autonomy. They are often um, incompatible. Uh, and Europeans perceive the Muslim value system as a threat. Um, I'd like to leave aside questions of, of, uh, that often come up in, in polemical discussion of Islam in Europe about uh, violence against women in housing projects, honor killings, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, again, these are totally legitimate worries, um, uh, but they exist in many societies, and, and you, can, you can deal with those through the criminal code. I am interested in the way that traditional practices and uh, traditional worldviews of immigrants can impinge on the modern practices of natives, even when the natives and the immigrants are totally segregated and um, 
don't interact. Um, and I would like to give a few examples. Let's talk, uh, let's consider uh, female circumcision or um, genital mutilation, uh, as it's sometimes called. This is a practice. It's common in uh, East African Muslim countries like uh, Somalia, Sudan, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, Egypt. Uh, and I, I, I should note about, about female circumcision, just to, to avoid any uh, misunderstanding, although the practices are generally justified uh, by those who do them with reference to uh, Muslim ideas of purity, uh, most uh, Islamic scholars don't believe there is anything specific to the Quran or the or the Sharia that that requires them. Um, but uh, it's quite prevalent in Europe. Uh, uh, general mutilation. A study by Amsterdam's Free University uh, found that it it is widespread in Europeans of East African descent. Although it is usually carried out on visits to the old country in order to avoid criminal prosecution. Um, feminists of an immigrant background have spoken out against the practice, but they've often been ignored or threatened. There are a couple of very well-known ones, like Ayan Hirsi Ali in uh, Holland, and uh, somewhat lesser-known um, uh, local senator named Mimut Boussakla in, in, in Belgium. So what does one do about this problem? Uh, it's the sort of thing that Europeans find intolerable. Well. There's a woman in the Swedish cabinet named Niamco Sabuni. Um, uh, she was born in Burundi, and she's now the Swedish Minister for Integration and uh, Gender Equality. And that very title, which is a new title, Minister for Integration and Gender Equality, should give you an idea of how important a battleground feminism, women's rights, the family are in when people talk about assimilating immigrants. Sabuni's idea was to call for a, a nationally supervised gynecological inspection of all schoolgirls in Sweden. And um, uh, not just girls of East African descent, but, but all the girls in Sweden. Um, uh, you had to do all the girls in Sweden or it would violate equal treatment. Uh, the, 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 it didn't really go over very well. Um, uh, it was uh, it, it re was rejected, but it but it but it introduced an interesting an interesting new thing in in, in Swedish life. The the fact that, that that such a proposal could be made at the highest levels of government uh, is is somewhat shocking. I, Fifty years ago, if a, a um, politician uh, in Sweden had suggested such a thing, the, the public would have reeled in horror. I suppose it did to a degree. I mean, we can. I, I think we should applaud the seriousness of Ms. Sabuni's approach to the problem, but we should also realize the, the damage it would, would do to the country's constitutional order. And, and I, I think that this kind of damage, or this kind of potential damage, needs to be reckoned in when we talk about the costs and benefits of immigration. People are very nervous about this. Um, uh, the, the, the solving of problems, even in an immigrant subculture, creates new rules for the non-immigrant society. Um, now, we tend, to, uh, we tend to, 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 to dwell on, when we make a cost-benefit analysis, we tend to say immigrants bring in so much in tax revenue, but they cost so much in, in expenses on schools and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I would suggest that we, we need to... Cons Consider the costs um, that come 
also in the form of rights and or in the form of the easy working of the constitutional order. And that cost is, um, that cost is much higher when you have to reconcile two rival systems of gender relations than when you don't. Um, now, some people will say, well, is it unfair to single out Islam? Wouldn't this be true, actually, of any traditional belief system? Well, it, it would and it wouldn't. I, let's look at another example. Uh, in, 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 in the late, in the mid-1990s, um, Denmark uh, lost control of its immigration policy almost completely. Uh, the, the main problem was that uh, it had a set of laws uh, on political asylum that were wide open, and, and they got way more immigrants than they could handle, either logistically or, or culturally. But that was compounded by another problem, which was marriage migration. The immigrants to Denmark acquired Danish citizenship very quickly, but a huge majority of Danes of non-Western background, um, 63%, uh, roughly two in three, uh, married people um, from their ancestral countries. And uh, this was true even of the children of, um, uh, of immigrants. It was true of people born in, in, in Denmark. And the figure was much, much higher for um, those from Muslim countries. Um, it was over 90% for both Turks and Pakistanis. Um, uh, this was seen as a threat in a number of ways. I mean, one is the, the, the huge wave of, of migrants that can be brought in by, uh, through chain migration. You, you marry into one person in a family who then gets a claim to, to bring in other relatives. And um, um, so you get a much higher um, uh, immigration than people thought they'd bothered for. Second problem, it showed that a lot of people who, um, uh, who held Danish passports did not really think of themselves as... As, as Danish. And, and third, it, it quite naturally made Danes feel that um, a lot of their newer citizens were not trying to build Denmark. They were trying to build something foreign in Denmark. So Danes felt their country had to act, but it was very hard to do so in a way that would not be racist or xenophobic. Um, and in 2001, Denmark passed a very strange law called the Aliens Act. Um, which stipulated that citizens under the age of 24, any Danish citizen under 24, who marries a spouse from outside the European Union is not allowed, except in extraordinary cases, to re reside permanently in the country. And it had incredible results. You, you, come, to, you come to UCLA as a, as a Danish student, you meet someone, fall in love, marry her, and you can't go back and live in Denmark. A, uh, um, so, um, now... What did Denmark think it was doing? I would say that Denmark's secret goal was to stem the implantation of Muslim culture on its uh, territory. And in that, it really succeeded. Uh, by 2005, only about a third of the foreign background Danes um, were marrying abroad. That's a tremendous drop. Uh, but there was a high price for this. And um, as we can see, it was a price that the entire society paid in rights. Um, uh, because what made the um, uh, what made this law defensible against uh, European human rights laws, uh, not to mention Dan Danes' own consciences, was that it was race, religion, and uh, ethnicity blind. But there was another price for this too, and, and that was the price in honesty. 
the state was um, making believe that its worries were over uh, people marrying too early or people marrying in a sexist context or people marrying their cousins and not over Islam or immigration. Um, all can't to the contrary. It turned out that, that these slogans that Danes like to spout, like, um, uh, you know, Mohammed is just as Danish as, as you and me, um, were not things that they, they really believed. Um, uh, so, so European publics uh, have begun not just to accept, but actually to demand in certain cases that their governments um, shade the truth. And another uh, example of that that I would give you would be uh, the French laws on the veil. Uh, for about 20 years, there have been big nationwide controversies in France uh, over schoolgirls coming to class veiled. And this was seen as a threat to teachers and to the state's uh, authority. It, and, and, and a threat not in an abstract political science way. There were some serious problems about the growing Islamic uh, character of um, some of these uh, urban classrooms. I, starting in 2002 with the beginning of um, what was called the Al-Aqsa Intifada in uh, Israel and the West Bank, there was a, a, a wave of attacks mostly by uh, students of North African descent on Jewish students. Uh, so, so the following year in 2003, a government commission was put together to address the problem, except they pretended that they were addressing, uh, addressing a different problem. Um, rather than say exactly what they're doing, uh, which is to stop the spread of, of politicized Islam in classrooms, they made this elaborate claim that what they were doing was, was, was reinforcing France's traditions of separation of church and state. And so they came out with a very convoluted law which banned, quote, conspicuous religious symbols, unquote, from classrooms, which just happened to include the veil. But they also banned headscarves and uh, they banned, uh, they banned uh, uh, crosses, large, uh, large crosses, yarmulkes, etc. So again, um, the, the price of managing uh, immigration, particularly of ma managing Islam, gets paid um, by the broader society in the form of, of rights. Uh, and, and you can see that, that, that Jewish kids attending um, uh, a violent uh, uh, public school might consider the loss of the right to wear a yarmulke a price worth paying for some sign of some sign of state action against the Islamization of these institutions. And Christians were largely affected anyway, since the crosses they wear are generally small. No one really ever explained what the, a large cross was. But you have this idea of like, the, I, I always, always thought of like the Flava Flav's clock, you know what I mean? Um, but, um, but anyway, um, uh, the, 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 the non-Muslim public thought that this was a, a pretty good deal, even if it was even if the government was not doing exactly what it said it was doing. Um, now, up to, this, up to this point, I've been describing this encounter between Europe and its immigrants um, from the perspective of the settled natives of Europe. The, um, you might call them the, the, the ruling classes, but uh, you, from the perspective of the ruling ideology of Europe. But I'd now like to address it from the perspective of first... Muslims, and second, those natives who 
neither make the rules of European life nor benefit from them. Um, the battles I've been describing are between a, a European feminist uh, ideal of gender relations and a, uh, a more um, traditional Muslim idea. And at, at some point, there has to be some discussion. And, and, and at some point, one of the things that, a question that has to pop into Europeans' mind is, how are we so sure we're right? Um, and uh, it would be easier um, to share the view uh, that there's something... This is an area in which European, European immigrants are not without strong arguments. Um, you, you very often hear, when you talk to Muslims in Europe, what, what is so wrong about a woman's wanting to shield herself from the gaze of the public? Uh, especially since what is what is the alternative you are uh, offering us? The sort of like racy, uh, you know, ads of the, the women that you see on the bus stops? Is it these this trashy reality TV? Um, in, in, in Amsterdam, um, in Amsterdam, Ayan Hirsi Ali, who's a woman I've written about and, and much admire, uh, has made the case, she was born in Somalia, and she's made the case a lot more eloquently than any other Westerner uh, for the uh, superiority of the Western conception of, of, of women's rights. But when you interview Dutch Muslims about, uh, uh, about her, they, they, they very often say, like, well, oh, that's great that she likes Amsterdam. And, and you, you walk around Amsterdam, they will tell you, and what do you see? You see women in the shop windows selling sex. Um, so this is a very difficult... This is a very difficult discussion to have. Whether or not this exploitation that, 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 that uh, conservative Muslims describe is caused by feminism or whether it's simply correlated with it, um, they, 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 they are on to something when they say that it might be a more serious kind of exploitation than choosing to wear or even than being made to wear a scrap of cloth. At the very least... Um, Muslim immigration has caused or will cause uh, a, 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 I think, a hesitation in European confidence in its assertion of values. Now, I should say that there's not much uh, evidence thus far of non-Muslim politicians in Europe seeing things this way. Public approval of sexual liberation or, or sexual openness or sexual autonomy or... Um, equal rights, or however you want to describe it, is really almost uh, compulsory. Europeans can conceive of no reason why anyone, any individual might want to withdraw from uh, into a more private sphere and, and live his or her sexuality there. And, and uh, when I say sexuality, I'm, I mean modest. I don't mean to get too into this, okay? Um, but anyway, at the height, uh, uh, one, one, one quotation that has always struck me as an American is that at the height of the veil debate, uh, Jacques Chirac, then the French president, said that there was a big, during the veil debate, there was also a discussion of um, women who asked to be treated by uh, women physicians. And Chirac thought this was absolutely outrageous. He said, nothing can justify a patient's refusing on principle to be treated by a doctor of the opposite sex. And that's a, 
that is a big difference between this country and Europe. Um, American politicians, one thing that has often struck me uh, uh, that among all this talk of, 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 of clash of civilization stuff, about 50% of the time on, on these sort of issues that pit uh, one civilization against the other, a run-of-the-mill American politician would side with the, with the Muslim immigrant side in Europe. And, and uh, for instance, there are a lot of signs in Europe of what we would call family breakdown. The, the illegitimacy rate in Britain nationwide, for instance, is 43%. But politicians who worry about these things um, are, are, are always ridiculed. They're, they're almost never rallied behind. I, I, uh, people like Anne Whittacombe in England or, or Christine Boutin in, um, in French, they are national uh, jokes in a way. It might be another way of saying that there, there is no Sarah Palin wing of European <laughs> politics. Now, um, uh, I enjoy a laugh at Sarah Palin's expense as much as anybody, but I've but I got, I, I, I got to say that I think this is probably a bad thing. Um, and uh, the, the French novelist uh, Michel Welleback wrote uh, a decade ago in his uh, novel, which has an untranslatable title, which is you'd call sort of uh, ex ex extension of the war zone, uh, a, 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 a world in which pleasure and comfort and convenience are the main goals has a lot to recommend it. But it's not necessarily uh, a world in which uh, people are brought closer together, particularly as far as gender relations are concerned. What it does is it extends the gap between haves and have-nots that we know from the market economy. It, it magnifies that disparity along a new dimension. Um, you'll have to read the book. I'm not explaining it right. But, but because, it is, uh, because it is attentive to such pitfalls and, and because it, at its best it has a uh, vision of human relations that goes beyond simply using one another for pleasure, Islam can appear like a real enrichment uh, to Europe, and not just to the Muslims in it. Um, now, uh, if there isn't, uh, a few final things to say, if there isn't room in politics for dissent from dominant values, then I think that dissent, that kind of dissent can find its expression in another sphere. Uh, maybe it's religion, Maybe it's ethnic identity, uh, or maybe, as in this case, it's a mix of both. And in 2004, um, there was an investigation of schools done by the French Ministry of Education, um, uh, it, it, responding to a lot of uh, panicked stories about Muslim youth. And, and I'd like to quote from it. It says, many French and even second-generation French students of North African origin who make up the majority in certain schools live as if they are foreign to the national community. They reply to anything you say to them with two categories, the French and us. Uh, where once they claimed an Arab identity, today they increasingly claim a Muslim identity. This is an indoctrination that begins as early as primary school, certain teachers claim. Many school children, if you ask them what their nationality is, will reply, Muslim. If you inform them that they are French, as we did in a junior high school in the Paris suburbs, they reply, that's impossible because they're Muslims. Um, now, this is, this is, I think, the reason that, that 
the European experience of Muslim immigration has less in common with the American experience of immigration, which has largely been a success, as I say, than with the American experience of race, which has been an enduring problem. It's not that the living conditions of Muslims resemble those of, um, of inner-city black Americans in the middle of the, the 20th century, although they sometimes do. With, there's a lot of drugs, there's crime, there's rioting, dead-end school systems, uh, and all of this creates problems that uh, sometimes look insoluble. But it's also that the European Muslim culture is beginning to look, in some ways, like an adversary culture to the dominant culture. Now, I'd like to explain what I mean by this. This is a, Adversary culture is a, an expression that was used by uh, Lionel Trilling, the literary critic. But what I mean is that for much of American history, it was a pretty reliable rule that what the culture wanted would be bad for blacks, and conversely, what blacks wanted would be unwelcome to the wider public. And an attitude sort of grew where a reflexive attitude of saying, well, if they like it, I'm against it. And, and, and that is why our racial problem has been so much more enduring than our immigration problems, which have been transitory. Our immigration, uh, uh, no immigrant culture in the United States has ever posed such problems. The closest you could come would be uh, the Irish in the time of the uh, uh, Know Nothing movement in the 1850s. But Europe's does. It has, in certain ways, become this kind of uh, adversary culture. Um, now, an adversary culture is not necessarily a failed culture, and it is not necessarily a misguided culture. Whether you consider it, whether you consider the, this a good um, description of 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 the American race problem, there is certainly an adversarial side to it, and um, that adversarial side to American black culture has actually been possibly the most robust culture we have had in recent years. Um, uh, the explicitly adversarial culture uh, of the, uh, that purports to be from the, uh, the American ghetto, the rap culture of the uh, 1980s and, and 1990s, that culture has swept the world. Um, and one place it has found a lot of emulation and empathy uh, is among European Muslims. The French rioters in 2005 wore sideways New York Yankees caps and they communicated with the television cameras in gestures copied off of old rap videos. And even if no one in the South Bronx dresses this way anymore, the adversarial language of that culture has become a part of what the American cultural historian Mark Lilla calls a universal culture of the wretched of the earth. Um, before the, now, now, before the days of the internet, uh, there didn't seem to be any reason to worry about uh, European Muslim culture. Europeans tended to view it as a subculture, uh, exiled, somewhat rootless, divided among themselves, and uh, really quite small. And and you could, in that being the case, you'd expect it to melt into um, the larger European culture. Many European Muslims will melt into the uh, uh, larger European culture, and many, many are doing it now. But 
in an age of global communications, European Islam does not look like such a subculture in any sense of the word. It, it looks more like a fully-fledged culture that in, on certain, in certain realms of life is organizing on different principles than the larger European one. And that, uh, that is why, I think, ultimately, uh, Europeans are taking so little joy in the o Obama victory. They, it, it, however much they wished for it, 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 they, 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 it makes them think less of the promise that it uh, embodies than of the um, problem that it shows some signs of overcoming. Um, and, and Europeans are reminded, as they look around their own countries, of our own race problem, as it existed about 40 years ago. This does not mean that Europe has an insoluble problem, and it does not mean that Muslims won't assimilate, but it does mean that the European immigration problem is a much bigger one than people recognize, and that uh, Europeans are only at the beginning of dealing with it. Thank you. Thank you, folks. Um, we'll now begin our Q&A portion of our lecture tonight. We want to remind you that this is being recorded for podcasts, so all questions must be asked into the microphone. Uh, please state your name and um, first and last name before your question. So do we have any questions for Mr. Caldwell? Um, my name is Alex. Uh, my question is, to ex explain the difference between uh, U.S. and Europe, uh, what is the salience of, of sort of public policy differences? And even within Europe, is there any, are there sort of public policy differences between uh, different countries that would explain differences in sort of toleration of immigrants, success, um, things like that? Uh, well, that's a big, that, 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 that's off the subject we were, uh, that we were talking about tonight, but it's one of my favorite subjects and in, 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 in something really interesting. Generally, Europeans like to talk about um, a French model, of, of integration and a British model of integration. Uh, the French model uh, involves uh, cultural nationalism. You have to become like us. You go to school, you know, the, the, the schools are the mills of citizenship. You go to school to become a French kid. You go to school to get a, you know, to speak French with a French accent and learn about French history as your history. The British system is much more laissez-faire. You, um, you can, uh, you can pretty much do what you want as long as you obey the law. Um, and there have been pitched battles over whether the British system or the French system of assimilation is the better one. And it, the better system of assimilation tends to be, in the public eye, the one that has produced riots less recently. You know what I mean? But, um, so that's, that's on the immigration side. On the public policy side, if you mean by like welfare states and that sort of thing, there's a great problem that, that European uh, welfare states have, have produced in the, in the public mind. Um, well, it's an actual problem, but it also creates a problem of perception. Um, partly because such a large percentage of... Euro well, just, just, you can talk about a whole lot of things. A large percentage of Europeans... Uh, have arrived in, 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 in these countries on political asylum. In many countries in Europe, uh, when you arrive on asylum, you can't work. But in all countries in Europe, um, uh, if you are in the country uh, 
but in all countries in Europe, when you arrive in the country, you, you have the same rights to welfare as other, as other people do. A first-generation immigrant can collect welfare. The result is um, that there's perhaps less privation among first-generation immigrants in Europe than there is here. But there are also neighborhoods in Amsterdam um, where the uh, rate of unemployment for first-generation immigrants is above 50%. Um, now, a first-generation unemployed immigrant in this country is almost a, a contradiction in, in terms. This creates a big... I, I think it's a big uh, uh, explanation for the, the, the differing attitudes towards immigration between our country and theirs. Pardon the long answer. We have a question up front. Yeah. Hi, my name is Florentina. Um, obviously, there's lots of cultural differences in between Muslims and the European cultures. What do you see, um, what do you think are some solutions to kind of integrating those cultures? And, and who do you see mm, kind of adapting more? You know, do you see the Muslim ideas about, you know, family life and everything integrating more into the European ones, or do you see Europeans kind of integrating the Muslim ideas into their own cultures? Thank you. Uh, um, yeah, this is a vast uh, question. Right now, I think, um, you know, as I say, I think there's more adaptation of European ways by Muslims than there is uh, adaptation of Muslim ways by Europeans. There is a significant uh, amount of conversion to Islam among Europeans now. But when I say significant, uh, th there are no reliable figures, but, you know, we're talking a, a few thousand a year. One thing that, that you do notice, and, and uh, unfortunately, one, these things tend to get written up in the newspapers and, and studied uh, uh, in universities only when they, there's some sort of spectacular, um, uh, things go spectacularly wrong. But one thing you do notice is that there are a lot of people from devout Christian backgrounds um, who have found in Islam things that, that perhaps they're not finding in, in, in European Christianity. So there's a little of that. I don't, I, I don't know what form this meshing of the two cultures, if that's what we can expect, is, is going to take. Um, I mean, I think that everyone, um, uh, I think most people in Europe hope for that. I mean, I'm sure there are people in Europe who think that a, a, a Europe in which the cultures were not required to mesh, uh, which is pretty much what Europe looked like 150 years ago, you know, you'd have, you'd have, you know, uh, little, you'd, there'd be a square mile in which there was an Albanian uh, village and a Jewish village and a Serbian village, and they all felt that they lived in, in different civilizations. Some people might like that model. But I, 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 I think that most people favor the idea that there will be some sort of coming together of cultures. Mr. Caldwell, question up here. Oh. Hi, uh, my name is Clelia. I'm French and Arab. And I'm really curious actually to know your point of view of all the consequences of the Algeria war that happened between France and obviously Algeria when they took... Um, then when they gave up the country, sorry, I forgot the, the yeah. word. Yeah. Um, but also to know 
knowing that Germany that has a really uh, important Turkish uh, immigration as well as French and British for all the Pakistanis, all the the three those three countries are the main countries in Europe, and usually they kind of set the rules on how to immigrate integrate people w once they get into the country. Yeah. So what do you think about those problems are related to the, the Algerian wars? Yeah, I, 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 I love this issue and I'm not an expert on the Algerian war, but I, I, I often hear, I often hear um, when I'm in Germany, um, well, let's say when I'm in France, I very often hear people say, well, you know what? This is an extension of the things we did wrong colonially. Um, uh, we have this problem because we really screwed things up in North Africa. And quite naturally, they have a claim, the, these immigrants have a claim on our society. And there's a very succinct way that the British say the same thing about uh, Indians and, and Pakistanis and Bengalis. They say, well, they are here because we are there. But... But if you go to Germany, you often hear Germans say, well, the reason we're having a hard time assimilating Turks is that unlike the French and the British, we don't have a history of colonialism, so we don't know these people. Um, uh, so you, you hear this argument done both ways. Uh, but but to, address, to address specifically the Algerian war, I was struck there's, a, there's an interesting history of... Um, of, of immigration in, in France. There's a number of history, interesting histories of immigration in France written by this one Sorbonne professor named Patrick Veil. Um, I think he wrote one called Qu'est-ce qu'un Français? Um, and he, uh, he describes the history of, of Algerian immigration. At the end of World War II, there was a desperate need for manpower in, 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 in Paris. De Gaulle wanted several hundred thousand workers. And um, the first idea they had was to offer the interned German soldiers that they had um, the opportunity to stay. And his advisor said, <laughs> no, that's not going to work. The second thing they did um, was they sought um, Italians as temporary workers. And um, for that, the French were outbid by the, the Dutch and I believe the Swiss. And the third option they had was the governor of Algeria said, I'll tell you what, I can provide you with 100,000 workers in very short order. And um, the French refused that. And they said, no, it would be bad for national morale. I don't understand why. But, but what happened was the, in, in 1962 and 63 during the Algerian war is that France wound up getting that massive immigration in a very haphazard way. And um, um, I'm sure you know the, the, the whole history of the, of, 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 of the difficulties that the Harkis had um, um, uh, getting recognition for their... their, their, um, their, 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 their these were the people who, um, who fought with France in uh, the Algerian War and um, uh, were not... Um, who, who never had their um, service to France recognized until, I believe, three years ago by Jacques Chirac. So I, 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 I think that the main effect, there, I think there were two main effects of the Algerian War. One 
it made the uh, immigration of North Africans to France, which may have been demographically inevitable, given France's need for, for, for labor, it made that immigration more haphazard. But I think the second thing is it caused a tremendous loss of comp- confidence among the French in their own competence to deal with immigration. Mr. Caldwell, question up here. Hi, my name is Aria, and I have a question regarding the United States. What the Federal Dream Act that the many senators tried to pass as to kind of like um, give another opportunity for undocumented immigrants to get the same um, financial assistance to universities. And do you think if we pass that law with the like European kind of like reconsidering their immigration policy to regarding like students like me? Oh boy. Um, so um, you know, I I don't do American immigration. I uh, I, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I you know I um, I, I I know there's the there's a whole line of sup- Supreme Court. Decisions. I think it's Plyler v. Doe is the one that that requires um, uh, students to be educated at the primary and secondary level, whatever their citizenship status. I don't know how that uh, how that relates to college education, but uh, this strikes me as a sort of a subset of um, some of the questions about what to do with. Uh, with the uh, undocumented uh, uh, immigrants that we have in in in, in this country, and and I, I would imagine that that it'll continue unresolved until there's some more comprehensive regulation. But as I say, I'll bet there are a lot of people in Los Angeles who know considerably more about this than I do. Yep. Mr. Caldwell, we have a question up front here. Oh yeah. Hi, my name is Ben. Um, thanks for, for a fascinating talk. I, I'm just a little sceptical, though, about always attributing these problems to the uh, Islamic nature of immigration and saying, oh, they pose a problem because, because of their religion. I mean, in one of the examples you cited in Sweden, um, this practice of, of genital um, mutilation, as you said, it's not sanctioned in any uh, mm-hmm. Islamic codes, mm-hmm. and it's only mm-hmm. practiced in the east of Africa. It's not true of the whole of the Islamic mm-hmm. world. So I think... Right. Um, you know, in that case, you can't attribute it to Islam. And, and so perhaps we need to give a more nuanced reading of um, immigrants' culture and not always attribute it just to, to Islam straight away. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a, that's a fair uh, correction. I, and and uh, I, I hope um, that uh, when the book comes out next July that you'll read it. Because it, it's... A, it, going to be about 450 pages long and, and, and it gives a little more space to talk about that and um, that I have here. I think you're right. I mean, I, we can, uh, I, I, I think that one of the big challenges of uh, Islam is that, uh, that, the, that there is a unity to it. It is an alternative to Christendom or to, uh, or to Western secularism or something. Or, but uh, uh, but that but that unity covers a sort of constellation of different cultures, which of course you can say about almost any culture, even if you're talking about you know European secularism or feminism. I mean, and so I, I forgive me for using terms like this in a kind of 
generalized way. I think I've probably been just as irresponsible in the way I've used words like feminism. So thank you. Mr. Caldwell, question all the way to the back here. Hi, my name is Meryl. I had heard not too long ago that a very large, the largest maybe mosque was being built in England, maybe the largest outside of Mecca, mm -hmm. a very large mosque. And I was wondering if that was still being done and if that might tip hard to the left all of this immigration that you're talking about in a more European continent way and what, if anything, was happening with that? Hmm. I I don't know the um, well, I don't know the mosque that you're talking about. I've been to a a, a number of 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 biggish mosques in in in, in Europe. Um, uh, I I don't I, I'm sorry. Could you tell me what you mean by tip hard to the left? I. I if pilgrimages were starting oh. to be done in large groups. Oh. Yeah, you know, I, I think, uh, is the mosque you're referring to the one in Dewsbury? In northern, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mosque being built in Dewsbury that's, that's pretty large. These things, oh my gosh, there's, there's such a variety of mosques. They're very, mosque building is a real flashpoint for Europeans because it is, it's a kind of in-your-face reminder that, that the, the continent has changed, that the culture of the, the continent is no longer... Uh, a wholly Christian one, and it, it's funny that when you look at um, surveys and and when you read the papers, you find that Europeans who are, you know, quite cool about living on a street full of halal butchers or uh, or, uh, or or having uh, you know an Arabic bookstore downstairs, they really don't like mosques, and and it's it's very it's been very hard to build for uh, Muslims to build mosques. And a lot of the job of uh, governmental Islam groups, I mean, like the Islam Conference in Germany and the um, uh, Conseil Francais du Culte Musulman, um, uh, a lot of their uh, a, a lot of their work has been in um, uh, in trying to make the building of mosques politically palatable. To, to the public, but they vary a lot. And um, uh, I, but but pilgrimages are only to Mecca. I, I think in, in Islam, I don't I don't think people be making pilgrimages to these mosques. They serve sort of the the, the local community. Yeah. Mr. Caldwell, up front, midsection. We have a question. Mm -hmm. My name is Saul. Isn't it uh, possible that? Uh, Euro European culture and Islam are not compatible at the, at the very base of it because the European culture is tolerant and Islam cannot stand. I think uh, the religious state is the, is, is, comes from the from Quran mm -hmm. and they, they, they are demanding and they will not tolerate a secular state. Mm -hmm. And and this makes them in, incompatible, basically. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, the the short answer is yes. It is quite possible that that Islam and and, and Europe are um, 
are, are not compatible. But, but I, I, I also believe it's possible that they're, they're compatible. I, this is an area that um, I hate to be seen to be, seem to be dodging the, the sort of kernel of this whole subject. But I, um, in my book and, and in my research, I've tried to steer away from um, uh, theology, um, to from the you know to to sort of uh, I don't read Arabic uh, I, uh, I I don't have a I, I I'm not good at theologically reasoning what Islam means and and what it doesn't. There, uh, looking at it historically, yes, uh, th- there aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of um, examples of um, well, let's say. There are plenty of examples of pluralistic Muslim-led societies, but there there aren't a lot of examples of pluralistic societies in which uh, Islam has done uh, has granted other faiths a position of equality. On the other hand, the idea of a dominant uh, faith, a dominant religious belief, granting uh, Equality to other cultures is a kind of a newfangled one in Europe too. There aren't many cultures that do that. So, I'd say that we're in. Uh, we are looking at, at something new, and and I'd be reluctant to um, uh, make predictions about it. Although I think that that the pessimistic predictions are quite possible. You know, are quite many of them are quite plausible. Mr. Caldwell, question to your right here, up, up way up here. Yeah. Uh, this will be the final question of the night. If you have further questions for Mr. Caldwell, you can speak to him at our reception taking place right after the program. Thank you. Uh, good evening, Mr. Caldwell. Uh, Zuhair Ibrahim. Uh, uh, this goes back to the beginning of your lecture, and you said Islam uh, came to Europe about 50 years ago. Uh-huh. I, I gather you glossed over the the Andalusia part uh, about yeah, 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 yeah. 1400 yeah. years ago yeah, yeah. and then sort of uh, uh-huh. the colonial uh, era etc yeah. I hope you have that in your book eventually at some point yes, uh, yes and, I do and <laughs> you attribute some of these co- current conflicts to that, yeah. to that uh, prior history and, and so forth right I, uh, so, did you have uh, uh, no I'm, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm yeah. I, you know, I, I, I should have made I, I, I think I, I thought I made clear and if I didn't um, I should have that I'm 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 what I'm talking about is the period of of mass immigration and and I do I do realize that uh that there have been uh, uh that, that that there have there are native european muslims in bosnia in in albania and I understand that the that islam stretched pretty far up into italy that it went up to the pyrenees um but in, in 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 modern times, I do think it's fair to um, I, I think it's also possible to to exaggerate the presence of um, uh, Islam in, in Europe. There's a very interesting uh, book uh, uh, that's out in England by a, a historian whose name is Humayn Ansari, and I forget the name of it. Uh, but he describes you know England as being a Muslim country. Um, 
since the uh, arrival of the uh, the, the Lascars, the uh, the Indian. Uh, sailors and, and dock workers in the early 19th century. So they were there. They were there. But I, but I think that the that this this modern uh, uh, mass immigration is 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 something different. It's a it's a different stage, and I I think it's fair to to sort of date it from just after the the war. So thank you, thank you, thank you all very much. <laughs>